Welcome to the first ATS Critical Care Ethics Podcast. We have Dr. David Chuljian and Dr. Kathleen Atkin here today. Uh, David Chuljian is an assistant professor of pulmonary and critical care medicine and medical ethics at Loma Linda University and the chair of the Ethics Consult Service at the VA in Loma Linda, California. He's also a member of the California Bar and the incoming chair of the ATS Ethics and Conflict of Interest Committee. Dr. Kathleen Atkin is an assistant professor at Yale School of Medicine, as well as the VA Connecticut Healthcare System in West Haven, where she serves as the director of the MICU and is a member of the Clinical Ethics Committee. My name is Sarah Beasley. I'm a first-year critical care attending at the University of Utah and Intermountain Healthcare in Salt Lake City. Kathleen and I are also members of the ATS Ethics and Conflict of Interest Committee. We'd like to discuss a case today of Mr. S., A 67-year-old man brought to the emergency room. He had been found unresponsive at his skilled nursing facility with empty bottles of alprazolam and oxycodone found next to him. These were known to have been refilled recently. Mr. S. has a history of multiple sclerosis that had been progressing and was now dependent for many of his activities of daily living. According to his family, he'd recently become more depressed about his situation and that he would not likely improve back to the point of independent living. Mr. S. lived in a state where Provider Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment, or POLST, was active. A few months prior to his presentation to the emergency department, he completed a POLST form with his primary care doctor. In his POLST, he indicated that he would only want comfort measures in the case of any hospitalization. It was unknown whether foregoing hospitalization altogether was ever addressed with the patient, and there were also no known referrals to hospice or palliative care. Also unknown was whether Mr. S. was treated for depression during this time. On arrival to the emergency department, Mr. S. was comatose with a GCS of 3 and did not respond to multiple doses of a reversal agent. Until the pulse was presented to the emergency room attending, the initial plan was to intubate Mr. S. Even once the pulse was reviewed, the emergency team did not feel comfortable with this directive and the patient was placed on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation and admitted to the medical ICU, where additional decisions over goals of care could be addressed between the MICU team and the patient's surrogate decision maker, his son, and the other family members. Mr. S. was admitted to the medical ICU. The patient's family was available within the hour to discuss this patient's care, but the ICU team was not sure what recommendations to make or what direction to take. Risk management and clinical ethics were approached for advice in this case. I will now turn to Kathleen to ask, what are the ethical obligations for the medical ICU team caring for this patient? What would be appropriate next steps for the patient now? Thank you, Sarah, for presenting this really important case for our podcast on behalf of the ATS Ethics and Conflict of Interest Committee. I agree, the case you describe is a very challenging ethical dilemma that intensivists might frequently find themselves in. For the purposes of my contributions to the discussion, I wanted to largely focus on patient autonomy. Patient autonomy is one of the four central principles in medical ethics, with justice, beneficence, and non-malfeasance making up the others. Autonomy is self-rule. It represents a patient's right to make their own decisions. It is up to the individual patient to determine the acceptable level of care they wish to receive. It was also codified in the Patient Self-Determination Act of 1990 that, among other things, required healthcare facilities to inform patients of their medical decision-making rights and explore advanced directives with patients periodically. In this case, Mr. S. had completed a post indicating that he would want comfort care in the event of a hospitalization although I guess we're not completely sure whether or not the hospitalization could have been avoided altogether. Yet here he was in the ICU. 
We must remember that the laws pertaining to implementation of PULSE and similar documents do vary from state to state. But a quick answer to the ethical question is that, of course, we are obligated to respect this patient's autonomy and to provide care aligned with his wishes. However, deciding to forego medical therapies to allow for a more natural death is substantially different from making a suicide attempt to try to hasten one's death and feels very different for many of us. As I considered our discussion for this case, I was reminded of the Dax Cowart case. To remind listeners, Dax Cowart was a young man who was severely burned in a propane gas explosion. His father had died on site. This happened in 1973, well before the Congressional Act for Patient Self-Determination and before our more contemporary era where pulse and similar documents are much more ubiquitous in our, in our medical culture. So for Dax Cowart, as he found himself in the field suffering severe, severe life-threatening injuries, he sensed how serious his condition was. In that light, he repeatedly asked to forego medical treatment. He continued his pleas during his long and painful recovery. He suffered enormous amounts of pain and felt as though the pain made living intolerable. He made multiple attempts to try to kill himself, and despite these pleas and suicide attempts, Dax survived. He not only survived, but went on to obtain a law degree 13 years later in 1986. He also had relationships that even led to marriage. So while we might see this and think of this as a very full, productive life that Mr. Cowart was able to have following this incredibly traumatic event, Mr. Cowart continues to express a wish that he had been allowed to die. He's remained a very vocal champion and defender for patient autonomy. Kathleen, thank you for bringing up this interesting case about Mr. Cowart. How would you say that this relates to the case that we have of Mr. S.? That's a perfect question, Sarah. So while Mr. S. did not have an opportunity to express his wishes to die during his evaluation and en route to the hospital or in the emergency department, he did make his wishes known to receive comfort upon hospitalization based on the pulse that he had completed in the past. It sounds as though he no longer felt he could bear his suffering and he may have intentionally tried to end his life. As you mentioned, Sarah, we do not know whether there could have been ways to avoid the hospitalization altogether, and it's tempting to think about whether referral to hospice and palliative care teams could have helped relieve some of the suffering sooner. I think that's true. However, at this point, Mr. S. is in the hospital, and the clinicians who were taking care of him in the emergency department, and then he was, he was transferred to the ICU, and those clinicians felt conflicted about what was going on. What would you say about that challenge? Yes, and and so as we know, MICU clinicians, and and myself certainly included here, continue to face these challenging ethical decisions for patients around end-of-life decision-making. These decisions, though, become particularly complex when patients may have undertreated psychological distress or disorders such as depression, and it just always is going to feel worse if this is in the setting of a suicide attempt. We have to ask ourselves, does someone making a suicide attempt necessarily equate to an informed decision to forego life-sustaining treatments? In most cases that we encounter in the MICU, we would say no. We frequently do treat patients in the ICU who have made suicide attempts, and we provide life-sustaining treatments as their condition warrants. Then we aim to get them the appropriate psychiatric care they need. Among the issues that complicate our mission to respect patient autonomy in this case for Mr. S. are that he appeared to be suffering from depression and his hospitalization could have been the result of a suicide attempt. 
So could we make an ethical argument that he did not make an informed decision to end his own life in the setting of his depression? Would we then argue that we should provide all life-sustaining treatments and that once he survived, we could talk about end-of-life care through hospice and palliative care services? We certainly face these circumstances where we continue to provide life-sustaining treatments in patients who have made these types of suicide attempts. However, in this case, the patient and his primary care clinician had already completed what sounded to be a thoughtful discussion and gone to the trouble of drafting a post. Once we get a sense from his family about his previously expressed wishes and perhaps the amount of physical and, and mental suffering he was undergoing prior to this hospitalization, we could feel more comfortable over what level of life-sustaining treatments, if any, should be provided. Thank you, Kathleen, for that thoughtful analysis. I think that point underpins the conclusion of this case I'll get to the end, which is that when we got a sense from his family about his overall level of suffering, it made the medical team in that case more comfortable over the treatment choices he was making. I think that this can be a very difficult area for intensivists. David, what are some of the other ethical considerations that come up in a case where clinicians have to decide about withholding or withdrawing life-sustaining treatments after a suicide attempt? Well, the main ethical considerations in these cases have to do with what we can and can't infer from the suicide attempt itself, particularly when the attempt has made the patient incapable of communicating with us. It's really tempting to infer a lot of elements in the case. I mean, note, for example, that in the case you've described today, we're assuming that it was an intentional overdose rather than an accidental overdose. That's despite the fact that there's no suicide note mentioned. And as Kathleen pointed out, the patient's wish for comfort measures on his pulse wasn't a clear expression of his wish to end his life. Having said that, even in cases involving clear suicide attempts, we can make false inferences that have enormous ethical implications. These inferences concern two main ethical considerations. Patients' general decision-making capacity and their wishes regarding life-sustaining treatments specifically. What would you say about capacity specifically in this case? Tell us more about that. In general, assessing patients' decision-making capacity is a key to how we respect their autonomy. As Kathleen pointed out, respect for autonomy is what gives patients the right to make their own medical decisions. Assessing their capacity is part of determining whether they have the ability to exercise that right. So it's important to note that the ability to make one decision doesn't necessarily indicate the ability to make another. Just because I can decide what I want for dinner tonight, it doesn't mean that I can decide if I want to have a liver transplant down the road. We normally assess patients' capacity to make a decision by discussing that decision with them. And when we can't discuss a decision with a patient, we then can't assume that they have the capacity to make that decision at that time. And that's when we look to advanced care planning documents and surrogate decision makers to help with the decision. While it's appropriate to look for that kind of help because a patient can't communicate, it may not be appropriate to look for it because of a patient's actions, such as repeatedly not following medical advice, as frustrating as that may be for us as clinicians. Now, many clinicians believe that amongst actions the patient may take, a suicide attempt is a clear indication that a patient doesn't have decision-making capacity. However, there's a line of thinking in bioethics that questions not only the assumption that a patient who wants to end his life is irrational per se, but also the assumption that the decision to end his life indicates that he can't make any other decisions. 
That line of thinking is reflected in the law in legislation like the End of Life Option Act, uh, which took effect here in California in 2016. One of the key features of that law and others like it is that it allows clinicians to assess the capacity of a patient who wants to end their life rather than having to assume that that patient doesn't have the capacity to make that decision just because of their desire to end their life. And one of the implications for this case is that even if a patient has made a suicide attempt, his clinicians in general should still try to assess his capacity to make medical decisions if he has the ability to communicate. Now, here he didn't, and so it would be tempting to have the fact that he attempted suicide indicate that he doesn't have capacity. But the fact that he attempted suicide doesn't necessarily mean he doesn't have the capacity to make specific medical decisions afterwards, and the team should keep that in mind. Well, thank you for that explanation about capacity. I found it very helpful personally. What about intent in a suicide attempt? So it's a good question, and, and it's another tempting inference uh, that I've seen clinicians make uh, in cases like this. It's the presumption that a patient who attempted suicide didn't intend to receive life-sustaining therapies and therefore wouldn't want them. There's two main problems with that inference. The first is that the patient may not have thought about life-sustaining therapies at all. It's not hard for us to imagine if we put ourselves in the patient's shoes. He really wanted to die and thought he'd be successful, and so he probably didn't think about life-sustaining therapies at all, since he'd presumably be beyond helping at that point. The second problem is a little bit more significant to me, and that is that even if the patient intended to end his life at one point in time, it's not necessarily true that that intent continues beyond the suicide attempt. So, for example, in one analysis of nearly 400 survivors of suicide attempts, which was published in 2005, 36% reported that they were glad to be alive after the attempt and wished they hadn't made it in the first place. Another 43% were ambivalent about uh, having made the suicide attempt and their resulting survival. So you have 21% who wished they had died but they're clearly in the minority. And another thing about that 21% is less than 10% of that group actually eventually committed suicide. So it's findings like those that should make us call into question the idea that a suicide attempt truly indicates an ongoing desire to die and therefore to have life-sustaining therapies withheld or withdrawn. For those reasons, in a case like the one we're discussing today, as clinicians, we should base our decisions and our recommendations on clear expressions of intent rather than make assumptions solely based on a patient's actions. And in this case, assuming that the pulse was completed when the patient had decision-making capacity regarding life-sustaining treatments, that would be a much more compelling guide to me as to what to do than the assumption that he was trying to commit suicide. Thank you, David. I think that's a really compelling point. And just to repeat that, it, saying that his intent when he had decision-making capacity in a discussion with his primary care provider about life-sustaining treatments, that was more important to you than some of the assumptions about when he came into the hospital. I think that's a good takeaway for practicing ICU doctors. And on, on that note, one of the things that may make some providers uncomfortable in this case, was a concern about the legal ramifications of not providing life-sustaining treatments following a suicide attempt, even though he had a pulse. So how would you advise clinicians who have these kinds of legal concerns in ethics cases, particularly 
like in this case, about honoring an advanced directive or a pulse in the hospital setting? Well, if I get asked questions about legal concerns in an ethics case, just to get it out of the way, I tell them that even though I have legal training, I'm not their attorney, and while I can give them general legal information, I can't represent them or advise them on their specific case, and blah, 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 all the things that the state bar says I have to say. In all seriousness, I usually tell clinicians that if they practice good medicine, the law generally takes care of itself. In other words, if you use your medical judgment and document that judgment to a reasonable degree, then liability shouldn't be a concern. In fact, I'd hope our listeners are aware of another reality, which is that if liability is your first concern, you've probably lost sight of what's best for the patient. Now, when it comes to honoring advanced directives and pulse in the hospital, it's important to note that a judgment not to follow either one of those has to have a basis and a pretty strong one at that. In the particular case of pulse, which are also known as state-authorized portable orders, they're designed to be followed outside the hospital, like by first responders or transporters or nursing facility workers. In that sense, physicians don't necessarily have to follow those orders when a patient gets to their facility, just as they don't necessarily have to keep the patient on the same medications that were ordered outside the hospital. Having said that, pulses are pretty unique amongst medical orders because generally the orders are only valid if they're countersigned by the patient or their representative. Of course, as Kathleen pointed out, state laws on things like pulses can and do vary, and clinicians should be aware of those laws, or at least of the policies at their facilities that are influenced by those laws. But if we take a pulse as an indication of a patient's wishes and not a mere medical order, then clinicians are going to have to have pretty good reasons not to follow the orders in the pulse. Thank you, David. I think that's a really good point. Now, what would be an example of a policy like the one you're referencing, perhaps in an environment you're familiar with, like the VA? Well, it's a pretty timely question, you know, because there is a fairly new policy that the VA rolled out nationwide just last month in January 2017 as part of its life-sustaining treatment decisions initiative. This particular policy states that if a patient without decision-making capacity arrives at a VA facility and has active orders like a pulse that preclude life-sustaining treatments, VA practitioners have to honor those orders unless the practitioners have evidence that the orders no longer reflect the patient's preferences. Not only do practitioners have to document that evidence, they have to consult with the ethics consultation service to help resolve the inconsistency that they perceive. So you can see that there's a pretty high degree of deference to things like posts in a policy like that. And that's generally true regardless of the circumstances under which the patient presents to the hospital. One of the concerns I've heard in cases like the one from today is that clinicians would be completing the suicide by withholding or withdrawing life-sustaining treatments from a patient following their suicide attempt. Not only am I not aware of any case law that has found a physician criminally or civilly liable in that way, but as we discussed before, a suicide attempt doesn't necessarily mean that the patient is still suicidal at the time they present to the hospital. Even more importantly, it's pretty well established that withholding and withdrawing life-sustaining treatments are ethically equivalent, even if they're not psychologically equivalent for clinicians. Indeed, withholding life-sustaining treatment tends to make us more, quote-unquote, uncomfortable than withdrawing it. And that discomfort 
sounds like it was a key issue in this case. Uh, in fact, it seems like that was the basis under which the patient received life-sustaining therapies in the emergency room, violating his wishes as expressed via his pulse. And that illustrates why the word uncomfortable is one of my pet peeves in critical care, particularly when it comes to triage. The patients aren't here for our comfort. In fact, I think it's supposed to be the other way around. If we're uncomfortable carrying out the wishes of a patient with decision-making capacity, who contemplated the possibility of hospital admission for life-sustaining therapies and decided he didn't want it, we run the risk of overriding that patient's autonomy. And to me, that's a more important consideration than our own comfort. Well, thank you, David, for that really practical and understandable explanation of a difficult topic. I think it's a good reminder to be aware of the laws where we practice as well as their hospital policies and to take a look at when we're taking care of someone, if we're uncomfortable, what that really means. Because you're right, we're not here necessarily to be comfortable ourselves, but to do what's right for our patients. Kathleen, is there anything that you would recommend a practicing ICU physician, especially someone starting out as I am in their career, what they could take away from this case and discussion if something came up in the future that was similar? Sure. Thank you, Sarah. And and I am so glad that you found such a wonderful and articulate expert to speak about many of the complexities of this case that we have with David. What we have to really remember is, is at a bare minimum, uh, two things. One is that, indeed, we're ethically obligated to respect patient autonomy, but that this does become more complicated in the setting of severe depression and in the setting of suicide attempts, as David nicely laid out for us in terms of how those aspects of the case can challenge our medical decision-making. The attempt to end one's life does not necessarily indicate one's wish regarding life-sustaining treatments, meaning, as David has, has talked about, not everyone who's suicidal wants to necessarily die. The decision to provide or withhold life-sustaining treatment should be based on other factors. In the absence of direct patient participation, surrogate decision-makers can assist in determining what the patient's wishes were and what they imagine they would wish in these conditions. For more information on this topic, I would refer our listeners to the 2016 official ATS-ACCM statement on shared decision-making in the ICUs. Well, thank you so much, and thank you to both you, David, and Kathleen for this thoughtful and educational discussion. To end this discussion, I'll just mention that in this case of Mr. S., the family asked that the patient's wishes to not have life-sustaining treatment be honored. They felt that was the patient's wishes and that the focus be on his comfort. Mr. S. passed away a few hours later without regaining consciousness. For further information to our listeners about the ethics of suicide, we would refer you to the ATS website as well as the writings of Margaret Batten on this topic. If any listeners have a case you would like us to discuss in future Critical Care Ethics podcasts, or if you would like to be part of a future podcast, please contact me, Sarah Beasley.